In Session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulaku, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week... For this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show is The Book of Pride by Mason Funk. The Book of Pride, LGBTQ Heroes Who Change the World. Um, June is LGBTQ Pride Month. And as I mentioned, actually, I think it was Monday's show, of course, might put more of a focus this month on LGBTQ issues, but it's something that hopefully we'll not just think of one month out of the year. Uh, but throughout the year. So looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today is The Journey of Humanity by Oded Galor. The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality. And uh, this is um, really a, a quite remarkable book, at least in its scope and what it attempts to do about looking at the origins of wealth or we, how even wealth started to accumulate and also trying to understand the deep historical roots of inequality and the inequality we observe today in the world. And so Oded Galor, has, uh, he's an economist who has developed something he calls unified growth theory, which essentially uh, describes what I was just saying um, it seeks to uncover the fundamental causes of de- development, prosperity, and inequality over the entire span of human history. And so in this book, he, he wrote a book of that title, Unified Growth Theory. In this book, uh, he explains that theory in a lot of detail and then uh, explains understanding of why equality or inequality is the way it is, um, but also some thoughts on what we can do about it. So as I mentioned, it's a really... Um, audacious in the sense of trying to give a deep explanation for our understanding of why things are the way they are, how we got here. And so I was really fascinated reading it. Some of the ideas I'd heard in some degree, some were very new to me, and I'll share some of that uh, with you. Really, it's a, a deep book. So as always, I can always give only give you a, a sample of what's in there, but I highly recommend you read it if you have any curiosity about understanding wealth wealth development and especially why we see the the degree of inequality we see in the world today um so to begin with he shares how human beings like other species for most of our existence we have been preoccupied with survival just trying to survive to have enough food and other resources that we need to to survive throughout history and that it's only in the last few hundred years that we've been able to overcome what uh, he calls the Malthusian trap and have a sense of surplus and focus on other things and start to accumulate wealth. So what is the Malthusian trap? Thomas Malthus had this theory, I think, 
maybe it was in the 1700s, I'm not sure on the, the year, but that human beings throughout history, even since the time of agriculture and adva- advancements that we had, always still stayed close to a substance, sub- subsistence level of uh, resources, meaning that even though we'd make advances, what he said was that then because of this surplus that would accumulate, uh, people would start having more children, the population would grow, and soon after that, we would go back to our same level of income or um, resources per capita. So we wouldn't improve our living standards, even though we would have these improvements and these advancements, because the population growth as a consequence of the advancements would lead to this type of a Malthusian trap. We would just get stuck in this. And his uh, pessimistic view, we can call it that, back then was that we would always stay in this this trap, this poverty trap. Um, but as Oded Galore uh, shares in this book, we were able to come out of that. Um, and he says how we tend to think, okay, the Industrial Revolution was what made everything change, but he shares these currents and these cogs of this machine that have been turning ever since the Neolithic Revolution, when we started farming and agriculture, that led to this being possible for us to then uh, no longer be so close to just the subsistence level and for the accumulation of wealth to be possible. And so we see this big transition, which is very small when we consider um, human beings, modern human beings, being a few hundred thousand years old, and we've only been in this new era of growth for about 200 years. And even still, not everyone is in that um, era of growth in the whole world. Some and many millions, or I think billions of people, are still living at this subsistence or below subsistence level of resources. So we could see it's definitely new in human history. Um, But he also, you know, there's times where he goes, he does start back throughout history and tracing towards present day. He also at times looks at things in the present day and trying to understand what we can learn from that or what we want to do about that. Because um, as I I think he rightly points out, when we're trying to, uh, he might not have put it exactly this way, but what, what I took from it is we're trying to make things better, let's say, reduce inequality with just like any kind of disease or sickness or problem, we have to understand the problem to be able to help it, to heal it. And so if we don't have a deeper understanding of how we got here and what the problem is, we will likely come up with solutions that won't work because we will address the problem uh, in the wrong way. So um, some things that are interesting looking at history and the historical factors that have impacted wealth relate to a variety of things, and I'll share a few of them. One is things like geography and where individual groups lived, because some areas were more um, prone to things like domesticating plants and animals to farm and to um, create agricultural environments. It was much, much easier for civilizations or societies or groups who were around let's say, the Fertile Crescent as compared to Sub-Saharan Africa. And so we can see how there was an impact that led to what can be called a technological head start for uh, areas that were more amenable to farming and agriculture just by consequence of 
the geography, the climate, the soil, and even the animals that were in that area. Some animals are easier to domesticate than others. So we can see that this led to a, a head start for those um, groups that then turned into civilizations because of that. Now, he shares that it's not just a straightforward head start as we might think that you know, if you got a head start, it should just be easier for you because he shares there's this interesting dynamic that if agriculture was easier for you as you got this head start, over time, if you were overly invested in agriculture, it could have meant that you were less likely less likely to invest resources in things like education and longer term types of things that lead to human capital, um, educating children, having less children. And so, we could see that some of these societies actually did not continue that head start or lost that head start because of that. So uh, what was once an advantage turned into a type of a disadvantage over time. Um, there's also looking at geography. Another aspect of it is how far you were from Africa. So human beings, uh, we began in Africa and migrated out. And so the further away you get, or the longer it took for you to get there, um, you're going to have less diversity in those areas. So uh, it, it's a bit complex, and even in the book, it, it was a bit complex to explain and for me to fully grasp it at first. I had to go back and reread it. But it does make sense that if you have, let's say, a population of a thousand people, and there's, of course, a certain amount of diversity within that thousand people, if 50 of those people move somewhere else, just by definition or effect of only being 50 out of the 1,000, you're going to have less or you won't have that full diversity of the 1,000 people in that population. Then out of that 50, if 20 of them eventually move again or some of the descendants move again, you'll have less diversity. So uh, it's interesting that you can trace this, and he, he showed it on these maps or like charts showing that we do see less diversity in the areas um, that were further by land. So if we look, because our ancestors were not flying from place to place, they had to migrate by foot, we see that the, the individuals who had to go the furthest and took the longest to get there over the course of history have less diversity, and actually the most diversity is w within that area of Africa where uh, human beings, homo sapiens, began. And so this brings up another one of these not straightforward uh, dimensions where diversity overall is good, but he shares that there is a type of diversity sweet spot when it comes to innovation. That if you have a lack of diversity, this leads to a lack of innovation because one of the things that creates innovation, or really the main driver of innovation, is different ideas coming together, uh, combining and recombining in new ways, which creates a type of progress. He actually shares the example of rock and roll, which was uh, likely the amalgamation of different cultures and different types of rhythms and, uh, and types of music coming together to create something very new and dynamic that uh, had a big impact. But it couldn't happen alone if there wasn't this uh, interaction um, between this diverse set of ideas and peoples. So if you don't have enough diversity, you don't have enough innovation. However, on the other side, if you have a large amount of diversity can lead to a lack of social co cohesion. So um, there's less harmony or it can be harder to achieve that harmony. And so he, he shows how 
there is this uh, clear path we can see between how much diversity these individual groups had and the type of innovation it likely led to. So it's a type of a U-shaped curve, that if there's not enough diversity, that's not good. But too much diversity in this historical sense could have been costly as well. And so he says this can be important because when we are trying to reduce inequality, keeping this in mind, uh, education overall is very good and very helpful. But he shares that in areas where there isn't a lot of diversity, there can be an emphasis on uh, promoting diversity and different types of thoughts and different types of thinking and encouraging that or even encouraging skepticism that don't just take the uh, you know established wisdom be open to challenging it because we need that type of um, flexibility and freedom for there to be innovation and on the other hand if there is a lot of diversity and uh, that that's could be problematic in the way that people are having a hard time for social cohesiveness well then you want to promote things like emphasize things like tolerance and understanding and and um, working together social cohesion and that might contribute to some type of progress um, other interesting facets or these these concepts that historically have impacted things uh, going back to the type of soil or the type of farming um, some farming uh, historically was able to be done more with things like hose and rakes small tools that can be operated with by pretty much anyone uh, it wasn't so strength dependent but certain type of farming required things like plows which required more upper body strength and as a result was more likely to have to be done by men historically and so they have found uh, it was a Danish um, economist I believe found that this historically has impacted gender roles in that in areas where farming could be done with the smaller tools, which meant that both men and women could do the farming, uh, we find that there is more egalitarian or equal gender roles. But in areas that a plow was much more necessary for farming, we see that we have more of sometimes what we call traditional gender roles in the sense that the men were doing the work in the outside and women were more confined to the inside work, uh, the housework because they were less likely to be able to do the farming work. And so this contributed to values that can be traced to this day, where we still see remnants of this historical artifact of just the type of farming and the tools that were needed and the strength that was needed, the upper body strength, and how that still impacts gender roles, which I found that quite fascinating. Uh, we are so impacted and affected by our culture and our cultural norms and values and they do have this tendency to make us feel like they are just the right way and they have to be the way they are and if they're not that way they are bad and wrong which is really how they have to function because everyone has to buy into the value of them um, but then when we see these types of historical explanations we can see how much they are impacted by these arbitrary factors and there really isn't just a right way or a good way of being um, that we are really have these values based on often historical circumstances that have possibly changed completely, but we still hold on to those old values. That was quite fascinating. So yeah, the book is a quite fascinating journey throughout all of history, human history, trying to give a deeper explanation and understanding of how growth and economic growth even came to take place, um, the different factors historically, 
there's geographical factors, there is the diversity factors I was talking about, um, a whole host of different causes and um, reasons he has to give forth that explain his theory of why we have gone to the place that we are, and then also to look at what can we do to make things better? How can we then, understanding how we have achieved this inequality or created this inequality, how can we overcome that inequality? There wasn't a huge focus on all the things we can do. I actually thought there might be more of that. It was more, I saw it as a um, descriptive in the sense of how did we get here in an understanding rather than prescriptive of what we can do. There were some, as I mentioned, things related to uh, education and some other things about resources, but not a whole lot about that. But he did say he wants the reader to have a better understanding of how we've gotten to where we are, and then with that it can equip us to uh, possibly make some changes going forward. So that was the book, The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality by Oded Galore. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, you know, something that came up with the, the previous caller that I mentioned to her was this uh, sense of feeling like I should be able to figure my problem out. And, and I mentioned how oftentimes people from the outside will look at a situation that we're in or someone else is in and think, oh, it's that's so easy. If I was in that situation, um, it would be no problem at all. And and I, I noticed this a lot. And also it comes up, we we're talking about abuse with, with that caller as well. Um, in different types of relationships, people think, oh, if I was in that relationship, I would leave. Or people will think if someone is in a domestically violent relationship, well, they must like it some way or they must uh, want that or else they would have left the relationship. But we see that people's lived experience is very, very uh, much more complex than that, that it's not so easy to think that if you're in a bad relationship, a painful relationship, an abusive relationship, you will leave. Not that you've necessarily experienced a relationship that is violent or abusive, but you've likely been in a relationship that you felt was unhealthy longer than you could have or should have. Um, And so in general, I think it's very important to be mindful of this tendency we have to look at other people's problems and think that they're very easy to solve or to deal with. And there's a few reasons why I think this happens. One is that when you are not in a situation, as much as we try to imagine using our you know, ability for empathy or our ability to imagine how we would feel, we, we can't do it. We can't really capture it. So, you know, sometimes someone will think, oh, if you were freezing to death, would you do this or do that? And we might think, oh, yeah, I think I'd be okay or, yeah, I would be uncomfortable, but I would probably, you know, be able to handle it or I don't think I would do something extreme like, you know, eating someone if I was starving to death or whatever it is. We we think it's easy to imagine ourselves in that situation and think, oh, I would probably handle it this way. But when we actually feel something that's when we really see what we would do in that situation. So as easy as it is to imagine or think we're imagining it accurately, um, we usually are not. So it's very easy to think you would feel this way and I would act this way. But once we're there, we see that it's it's quite different. Just like right now, if I tell you, oh, imagine you are at a, a dinner party and you're going to jump on the table and start screaming and dancing. When you just think of it right now and you're listening to me and maybe you're in the comfort of your own home or car, 
it might not seem like that difficult of a thing to do. I just jump on the table. Who cares? Who cares what people think? And they forget what happened anyway, and then we'll just, you know, move on. But when you're actually there, you realize it feels very different. And almost you might feel like it's impossible for you to do that thing that when you just thought about it, um, you know, seemed like an easy thing to do. So that's one big aspect of it is that we can't really know what it feels like to be in a situation or as good as we can be at imagining and we can get a sense of what we might feel we really can't capture that actual feeling of being in that moment another reason i think we do it is to feel better about ourselves um you know often people say oh my problems are difficult but look at the, that person's problems are so easy oh i wish i had that person's problems you know i would just do this or do that or whatever it is. Oh, they're not able to study. Oh, it's so easy. I would just set an alarm and start studying from tomorrow. And that's easy. My problems are the hard one uh, or the hard ones. That's how it always will feel. Because when you're going through something and you feel it, it always seems harder than the imagined problem of someone else. So I say that so we can be aware of this tendency and to catch ourselves because we all do this. We all see other people's problems or we see a situation and we think I would have never acted in that way. Someone loses their temper and does something like, oh, I would never do that. But we don't know what was going on for that person or how they got to um, the point that they are at to to feel that way or to, to experience that. And so I think it is a good general tendency to have that we think that whatever someone is going through or whatever they did in the same circumstances or in similar circumstances, I likely would have done the same thing, or there's a good chance I would have done the same thing. Of course, it doesn't mean we're all the same and we would do the same things, but it's something just to be aware of that our tendency is to go so far the other way that I think it could be good to try to go back overcorrect or recorrect in the right direction. I see this happen in uh, talking about psychology experiments. You know, you'll say they're, you know, the study and everyone was trying to say, you know, they would ask someone, how long is a certain line compared to other ones? And because the other people who are part of the experiment said the wrong line, you know, a majority of people or a certain number of people said that they agreed with the wrong answer. And most people think, oh, I would never do that if I was in that situation. Well, if they f tell you that 70 or 80% of people did something, um, you should think, well, you know what, it's more than likely I would have been one of that 70 or 80%. We'd like to think, oh, I would think different, think for myself. But the reality is if something is a human tendency, you being a human being, you're more likely to act that way than to not act that way. And so all of this can allow for us to be more empathic, have more empathy for our fellow humans when we see them going through something where our initial tendency might feel like, oh, that's not that hard, or I would be able to handle that, or I would you know, not be as affected by it. But that is another one of our human tendencies is to do that, to make that type of a conclusion, because it's very easy from the outside um, to judge a situation that we're not in. You know, I've heard this with everything from addiction. I, I mentioned that with the caller to say, oh, oh, they drink, just stop drinking. It's very easy, but it's much more complicated than that. Addiction is a complex um, issue that a person is dealing with that has physical, behavioral, psychological, neurological, a whole bunch of uh, factors that go into it. On the surface, yes, it seems easy. That's the case with almost any problem on the surface and the solution of it is very easy. Actually doing it is hard. Uh, 
oh, you're having a hard time getting your work done, just do your work. You're having a fight with your, you know, whoever, go talk about it and work it out. So just keep this in mind because we tend to, to overcorrect in how we see um, people's problems as easier than they are. And so I felt that with that caller, the other consequences we then can sometimes do that to ourselves because we hear other people say how easy it is or they tell us, oh, I would have easily solved this problem or dealt with the situation you're in. And we oftentimes believe them when they tell us that, when really it's that they don't know what it's like to be in that situation, or they don't really know what they would do if they were in that same position. So in that way, we can also have some more empathy or compassion for ourselves, not to be so hard on ourselves when we're dealing with a problem. You have your set of issues and whoever else you know or you're talking to, whether you know their issues or not, they're dealing with something as well. That's just part of being human. None of us is perfect and all of us is working on something that maybe to someone else is easy and maybe their problem to us might seem easy, but it really isn't the case. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I wanted to end the show today talking about a, a personal experience that um, brought about some issues that I've definitely talked about on the show a lot, but when you, you go through an experience, it illustrates it to you even more deeply. So I wanted to share it with you and uh, see what you think. So uh, recently I went to um, get my driver's license renewed and didn't think much of the process, but when I was there, they, they actually asked to do a vision test because I think it had been so long since I'd done that. And when I was doing the vision test, I saw that I, I was having a harder time than I was expecting reading some of the letters, especially out of one of my eyes. And so it was kind of a, a wake up call. Um, I knew for a while I probably needed glasses. This is for seeing uh, far away, uh, but I had put it off and that itself is something I can talk about. Um, but seeing this, having this experience made it very much in my face that, okay, I have to have to do this, do something about it. So that's the first part that um, often we avoid facing our problems or doing something about a problem or issue that we're experiencing. And I've definitely been guilty of that many times and was guilty of it here that I did feel something that, you know, uh, from far away, things were a little bit blurry or at nighttime lights would kind of have this, I forgot what they call it, but you see a bit of a glare or they stretch a little bit at the ends. Uh, and so I, I knew it was a, a important thing for me to take care of or that I should take care of it, but I kept putting it off. Um, I hadn't seen an eye doctor in, in so long, I think since probably childhood. So that was one part of it that I realized I was putting, putting this off for a long time and that's not good. And so it's a reminder for all of us, whether it's medical types of tests or things or dentists or, um, more things in our personal life, almost all of us is probably ignoring some issue or problem that would be better for us to address because the problems don't go away and they, they just get worse and they continue to hurt us. So that was one part of it. Uh, what was also has been interesting is a whole new thing for me because I'd never have worn glasses before. I'm not wearing them right now on the air and I'll kind of talk about that. But um, I received them a, a few days ago and it was really, uh, pardon the pun, eye-opening because all of a sudden when I put them on, I was seeing that things, especially that were a little bit far away, became so much clearer. It really was this feeling almost like seeing things in HD, in high definition. And so this was interesting for me because I realized how much I had just gotten used to things being 
the way they were and accepting that reality even though I could have something better. And so it's, I think, a human strength and but also a, in a way weakness the strength is that we can adapt to so many things that we you know if things aren't quite optimal we can still find a way to make it work and so my eyes found a way and just myself to to get through and not even realize that things were not so okay so that's the the good part that adaptation part but the bad part is that we can then accept that um, when we don't necessarily have to so this reminds me of uh, that famous, I think it's the serenity prayer, where it's that we, uh, God grant me the wisdom uh, or the, the strength to change the things I can and the patience to accept the things that I can't, and then the wisdom to differentiate the two. And that's really important. So if we can change something, we want to do something about it. If we can't, we want to learn how can I accept this reality, this thing that I can't change. But that sounds really simple. The hard part is that last part of knowing which is which. Sometimes something is bad and we have to accept it, but sometimes something is not is bad or not good and we can do something about it. And so here, clearly I could do something about it, but I was just accepting it as it was or didn't even think of it or most of the time wouldn't think of it. And it accepted this type of a, a reality that this is just the way it is. So um, that was also an aspect of it that as soon as I was seeing the clarity, um, I was realizing how I had gotten used to something that was not good and not okay. Uh, another part of it is, is still I'm in this adjustment process. So I had never worn glasses before. And so when I wore them, I had this really, uh, some things were clear, but it was also a bit disorienting. And so quickly I, I Googled uh, my experience and saw that, yes, yeah, sure enough, um, when you first wear glasses, especially if it's your first time, or if you're changing to a stronger prescription, you might have uh, some of these types of symptoms that I was having. So I had a sense of um, disorientation, but also I didn't feel good. And, you know, so you might have things like uh, dizziness, nausea, headaches, eye strain, but you also might experience things like a fishbowl effect, which I did, uh, and difficulty focusing. So I was having a lot of these symptoms that I guess are pretty common, but they were tough to deal with. It was not comfortable. I was uh, and still I'm dealing with this where I would feel a bit disoriented or I'd go, uh, you know, for a walk. And so I did that today. I went for a walk and some things looked great. I could see the leaves from farther away than I usually could. That was nice. But I also felt a bit like more out of it and not so comfortable. And so I'm still in this adjustment period. And even it does sometimes make me have these moments of, oh, maybe I don't even need them at all. And so that's a reminder for me of when we're trying to make progress when we're trying to grow and even go towards health even though if we're going towards health we would think that means it feels good and we're going to go in that direction it actually will make us feel uncomfortable while we're on that path until it becomes our new habit so um, I suppose use the analogy of your posture and makes me think of how I'm sitting in my chair right now but how you sit in your posture of course can impact you know a lot of things but your back, your neck, different muscles. And a lot of us will have poor posture, but we've not comfortable with it. And if you try to change to a better posture, even though it's healthier for you, it doesn't feel right. So if you try to walk with your, you know, with the correct posture and you're used to hunching your shoulders, even though it's good for you, it doesn't feel good at first. 
And whenever you don't think about it, you go back to your old way of doing it, the more unhealthy way. So uh, our comfort zone, even though comfort sounds good, it doesn't mean it feels good. It just means that we're used to it and it's not as anxiety provoking as doing something new or different. So we stick with that, even if it's painful. So I've realized that I'm going through this and it's still a process and uh, the distortion at times feels a little bit weird, that fishbowl effect. Uh, it talks about I definitely experience or sometimes I'm looking at what I know is a flat surface like a table but it looks like it's slanted downwards and it's a bit disorienting uh, I was trying to prepare some food and realized I shouldn't do it with my glasses on because I was uh, having a hard time when I was cutting something realizing the depth of things so uh, you know it was a reminder that when we're changing towards even something healthier we have to be ready that sometimes along that path we experience something that doesn't feel good or even it's worse for a while. I would rather not have a headache than to have a headache, obviously, but if I want to adjust to these new glasses, I'm going to have to deal with some headache and finding some balance where I wear them enough hours a day so I start to adjust, um, but then over time, you know, those headaches will go away. And that's the other aspect of it, that when we're trying to grow, um, it's a reminder of the plasticity of our brain. So some of what I'm experiencing is that before my eyes were compensating for the difference in how they were seeing things, one eye being actually stronger than the other and trying to adjust and put things in some type of focus, that now when I'm looking through these glasses, even though it's corrective and it's supposed to make my vision better, it's disrupting the way that my brain was making sense of the world outside of me. And so as much as we think of ourselves as just there's an objective world and we take it in purely we now know that our perception is much more of a uh, i forgot which author it was but calling it a controlled hallucination that it's a way that we have an image in our brain of what's out there but it doesn't mean it is matching directly with what's out there it's something that uh, our brain uses to understand the world around us and to get around the world so my brain is adjusting to this new way of perceiving and in the meantime there's this adjustment period and so I'm you know imagining my brain making these new connections and connections probably with my retina and the parts of my brain related to vision and it's going to take some time and I'm imagining when I sleep some of that is also happening consolidating this new way of of learning or of looking that will will take some time for me to be able to actually adjust to so it's been quite a process and I'm still in it even today as I mentioned I was wearing my glasses and having a bit of uneasiness with it and I'm trying to push through that um, but it's a reminder of how when we're trying to get better at something or heal something that initial pain can be discouraging and might make us give up it made me think also of my therapy clients and something that we often tell clients when they're starting therapy and I uh, don't say to every client I would say but I regularly do depending on what they're going through and if they will also depends if they've been on in therapy before but I'll, I'll share with them something that can be surprising for some people but it does seem to be the reality that when you start therapy obviously you're going because you want to feel better or you want to work on something but what we often see is that people feel a little bit worse before they start to feel better so even a few sessions in they might feel a bit worse than they do better this isn't true for everyone and it isn't some kind of a all-or-nothing thing you might 
feel better in some ways and feel worse in other ways. Um, but why might this be that you feel worse before you feel better? Well, when you go to therapy for many people, um, in the course of therapy, they start to talk about things and talk about things in a way that they never have before. So you talk about things from your past and some of them might be pleasant, but it also might be some unpleasant things. Or you might think talk about things you're going through now that you try to avoid or not talk about or haven't told anyone. And now you're verbalizing it and saying it out loud. And these uh, types of experiences, although they might lead to growth down the line, initially can make us feel worse or make us feel bad. So if you talk about painful aspects of your childhood, understandably that won't feel very good in the moment. And it's possible it can feel cathartic and you might feel better in some ways in just sharing it. But oftentimes people will find that they don't feel better, that at first they feel worse thinking about this thing that didn't feel good or one of the more painful aspects of their childhood or something they're experiencing. And so it also reminds me of if you are going to work out, you go to work out to feel healthier, to feel stronger, but especially at the beginning when you start working out after a while or you're doing a new workout, you'll likely feel very sore the next day. And actually that knowledge is really important. So if you did a really intense workout and then you woke up the next day and you didn't know that that pain of soreness was actually a good thing, you might actually freak out and be like, what's wrong with me? Why do I feel this way? Why does everything hurt? And if you felt that way and didn't know that this is actually a good thing, that it seems like you've pushed your muscles to the point where they're actually going to get stronger because of this exercise, you probably wouldn't do that workout again. You're like, oh, no, no, I'm not doing that. I felt horrible afterwards, right? So this is why I think it's actually so important for people to be aware of this possibility that many people feel that you could feel worse when you start therapy before you start to feel better. That the fact that you don't feel good isn't a sign necessarily that the therapy is bad or not working or won't help you. It could be a sign that you are pushing into the emotionally uncomfortable areas that will eventually lead to growth. And one of my uh, big lessons um, that I often talk about is that going back to that uh, differentiating between the things we can change and the things we can't change, another similar type of uh, differentiation we have to make is the pain that leads to growth versus the pain that leads to damage. Because pain doesn't feel good, but sometimes we know that no pain, no gain. You need to have that pain in order to grow. But we also know sometimes things that are painful obviously are just bad for us. And the hard part is knowing which is which. Am I sore because... Uh, I had a hard, good workout, or am I sore because I did a bad workout, or I overdid it, and I'm hurting my body in some ways. And so similarly, when you go to therapy, you can be ready that you might not feel good. And that can also come out in different parts. It's not just a, you know, the first sessions you'll feel bad and you'll always feel better. Uh, often in the course of therapy, you will have a session that you leave not feeling so good because some new things have been brought up, or you got to some new place, a new depth of yourself that makes you feel uncomfortable or not so good. Just like if you're working out, you might get to a place where you're not getting sore and then you switch things up and all of a sudden you do get sore. And so you're just back to that type of growing or that type of an experience. Uh, but yes, yeah, so for, for me, it was interesting going through this process of getting the glasses and 
and still in this process of a adjustment, it was just a reminder of how change is always difficult. Even if we know the change is for the better, here it's really clear to me this is going to allow me to, to see better, to feel more comfortable, to not have some of the eye strain I was even having before I got the glasses, which was likely due to the poor vision. So it's going to help me. So it's very clear that it's going to help me. And even still, I've had these moments where, you know, I didn't want to continue or I thought, oh, is this worth it? Or will I ever get used to it? And, and to be honest, actually, since I'm not fully there, I still do have this sense of like, am I, am I going to get used to this? Because I've heard that, you know, people say they've worn glasses, you forget you even have them on. And I'm far from that. And so I wonder if I'm going to get there. So I do still have some uh, level of doubt, but I do take comfort knowing that so many people have obviously done this and gone through it and believing that what they've gone through is likely what I will go through, but I'm still in that tough part of just getting through the, the adjustment period. So maybe next time you see me, I'll have glasses on. We'll see. I'm getting more and more comfortable with them. Not wearing them right now in the studio because like I said, I get a bit disoriented or uh, not so um, comfortable when I'm wearing them. So I thought it wouldn't be the best idea to do the show while I have them on, but I'm sure in a few weeks that will change too. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. A big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Lokwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Mm-hmm.